by his decision for Jesus. You see, that's the way. But a decision for Jesus is what? An activity on the part of the will. And it's this virtue that I have that an unbeliever doesn't have. And so I am, whether I realize that's what I'm saying or not, confessing that I am justified by works. That is, by this one virtue of faith. So, you can see how in American evangelicalism, it's you've got to give your heart to Jesus, you've got to make a decision for Jesus, all of this, but it's misunderstanding faith as a virtue, as a work, and it's wreaking havoc on all of your, all, all of Christianity. It's in complete disagreement with the scriptures. Maybe one final point. If you've got this thing within you that's good enough to make a decision for Jesus, to kind of meet him as the 0.001 in the equation, and um, thus complete salvation, if that goodness is left within you, then did Christ die for all of you? No. There's a part of you that he didn't die for because it's already good. It's already innocent. It's already capable of turning toward God. And so Christ doesn't need to die for that. Um, do we find that kind of articulation in the scriptures? Christ died to take away all of your sins except for your free will, which is already good. Christ died to take all away, away all your sins except for your heart, which is capable of this one meritorious virtue called faith. No, we never see anything like this in Scripture. Christ died for all of us because there is none who seeks after God, none who does what is right, no, not one. So anyway, thank you for that, Vicar. We want to avoid all that. It's where this passive language is really helpful to grab a hold of it, just passive faith, passive righteousness. In that tight little terminology is contained this whole lengthy explanation. I don't really know how to articulate this, but as a Christian, I told someone that I know where I stood on certain... Um, I can't imagine that you would do that. <laughs> I know. It, it came out of me. It was like a... I'm sorry I interrupted. Please, please oh, He knows. Please In continue. writing, I did it. Oh, yeah. nice. Oh, I, okay. I doubled down. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I said... Some I, I explained to this person that for years and years and years I haven't said anything, but I wanted to say as a Christian that I stood against it. Mm -hmm. And rather than getting it off my chest, it's burdened me, mm. <laughs> obviously. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I didn't want to appear righteous, but as a Christian, should we just be passive about everything? Just accept the righteousness mm. of God and just be passive. Good question. Should, we, should Lutherans become the first Christian Buddhists? I didn't hey, say everything's that. Everything's okay. <laughs> what happens will happen. Well, that's kind of the question. Medi and it's a great no. question. Well, I think it's a great question because if we articulate faith as passive, which is necessary to do, lest we load it up with a bunch of works and turn it into an active virtue, um, this is very important. We need to articulate faith as passive in regard to our salvation. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 1, 16 through 17. The righteous shall live before God, not die, right? The wages of sin is death. So how on earth are we going to live? Only if God removes from us our sins. And if we receive this, how? by faith. Now, all of this is spelled out in the forthcoming chapters of uh, Romans. Okay, so we're talking about salvation, our standing before God, and thus, um, we, when we say that we are justified by faith apart from works, we're talking about passive faith. But, 
does faith become active or does it have an active aspect to it? That would be a better way to think of it. Yes. Yes. Now, God gives us one faith. So you can think of it like this. It's kind of a well-worn analogy. But God gives you a coin. It's a coin. It's a singular unit. But that coin has two sides facing completely different directions, almost opposed to each other, almost, you would say, opposite. And yet, one coin, two distinct sides. Faith is exactly like this. God gives you faith, all of it. But faith has two different aspects that are almost contradictory. In fact, they are in some ways. One is it, one side of that coin called faith is salvation. How is my standing before God? Their faith is entirely passive. This is in keeping with the paradigm of justification. But if one goes to the other side of the coin, one sees fides activa, faith active. And Luther says, faith is a living and active thing, already doing good works before it's even been commanded to. All right, so um, other side of the coin is faith active. This accords with the paradigm of sanctification. This is where faith becomes stronger, progresses, crucifies the flesh, wages war, grows in wisdom and stature, in favor with God and man. This is where faith is completely active. All right? Now, what do we see in the scriptures? We see the scriptures speaking exactly this way. In some places, like Romans, faith being used in a very technical and passive sense. Elsewhere in the scriptures, even in the Pauline epistles, particularly to the, the pastoral epistles, to Timothy and Titus, we see faith articulated in an active way, to be strong, to increase, to grow, to foster and grow faith in others. All right? So it's one faith that God gives to us, one coin he gives to us, and that one faith, that one coin, has these two different aspects, a passive aspect and an active aspect. You just want to keep those, if, you know, if you take those two sides of the coin and you, and you force them to join, what have you done to the coin? You've necessarily had to cut it asunder and twist and mangle it in order to do that. So we're not going to do that. We're going to keep the coin whole. There's no such thing as faith without works. There's no such thing as passive faith without active faith. It's one gift. But, we're not going to then take those two aspects and mangle them together and destroy the coin, right? So, nor are we going to sever the coin and say, I'll just take the active part. That seems to be American evangelicalism and a kind of subtle legalism. Nor are we going to sever the coin and say, I'll just take the passive part. That would be a kind of antinomianism. Sometimes goes by radical Lutheranism. Oh, you see this in spades in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the largest Lutheran denomination in America, the ELCA. How so? Well, faith is just passive. It's a received righteousness. And so anything that tells me to be active must be wrong. So anyone who tells me to be righteous or to keep the Ten Commandments must be Wrong. Tear that up. It's contrary to the passive faith. It's contrary to justification. So the logic goes. This is how the ELCA can ultimately land in all the kind of like, um, 
sexually weird and progressive stuff that the world's doing because it says that we are we are justified by faith and that's all that matters so don't come at me with your morality don't come at me with your 10 commandments or your biblical teachings that's all law that's all active we're doing gospel we're doing passive so what have they done to that coin of faith they've cut it in half they've got rid of the active part they've only kept the passive it's an overreaction in some respects to American evangelicalism that has taken the coin, cut it in half, and just kept the active while dismissing the passive, you see? What does Rome do? Takes the coin, cuts it in half, and smushes the two together so that your salvation is a combination of faith and works. So we're not going to be cutting the coin and smashing it together. We're not going to be cutting the coin and keeping one side or the other. We're going to take the whole coin. <laughs> and we're going to keep those two aspects of it, the passive and the active, separate. Two sides of the coin. That's how you keep a coin a coin. That's how you keep the thing whole and as it was intended. And so that's really all we're doing here. Hopefully that analogy, I know it was a little protracted, but hopefully that works. Hopefully then you see. So we're on, a, we're on the topic called passive righteousness. Guess what you can do with this coin? You can do the same thing. The righteousness of God is to give you the coin. That's the goodness, the purity, the wholesomeness, the holiness, the awesomeness of God is that he gives you the coin. And in fact, he gives you the coin, he gives me the coin, though we are completely undeserving. Here you go, free gift. That's the righteousness of God. Now, that coin itself is righteousness. Passive righteousness, insofar as I receive it as a gift and am thus saved. Active righteousness, insofar as the Holy Spirit starts to make me a new creation. Remember what St. Paul says? Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matter any longer. Those are matters of the external body. What matters is a new creation. And in baptism, we're precisely this. We are born again, born from above. We become a new creation. And that, that new creature within us is, means a new heart with new impulses. For the first time in our lives, we start going, you know, I kind of love God. I kind of want to understand more about I I don't a good part of me still doesn't want to go to church, if I'm honest, because that's my, but that's my sinful nature. There's a part of me that suddenly does want to. There's a part of me that suddenly realizes that not wanting to go to church is wrong. And I don't like that. It's disordered. Okay, well, these new impulses within us are active righteousness. You see? It's an activity of the heart. It's a living, breathing, vibrant thing, Luther says. It's a new creation. All right, so then we can do the same paradigm with righteousness and understand this in a very profitable way. God gives us righteousness, that's his righteousness. We receive it passively, that's our justification. But that righteousness has an active component, that's our sanctification. Sometimes this is called the two kinds of righteousness, or there's very varying ways of articulating this, but some of you may have heard that it was really in vogue, gosh, maybe a decade ago, I don't know. No, not that long. Half a decade. Um, it was really in vogue to kind of, kind of dig up this way that Luther used to speak of the two kinds of righteousness. Um, you know, I think a fair enough way to just get a basic grasp on that by saying passive and active righteousness. Please. Yeah, you've been uh, talking uh, great. I mean, very at great well. length. Yeah, very wordy. Yeah, <laughs> about what I was going to ask, but not exactly what I was going to ask. And that is, is how do we balance the two? In other words, uh, and I love the analogy of the coin. Uh, yeah, it was great. Um, so, because we get so prideful in 
on either side of the coin. If I'm doing good works and and uh, really, you know, trying to concentrate on that, you get prideful in that. You know, I'm doing great. And, and yet, on the other side, if I'm, oh, I don't, I can sin and I can do this, I don't need to worry about, you get prideful in that. Mm-hmm. How, do, how do we balance that? <laughs> yeah, so and, it's, a, it's a great question. It's something we run in all the time, yeah. So, so this, this is where, I mean, the answer isn't doctrine as such, because you already know the doctrine. The answer is prayer. So what you do is you literally say, um, God, I'm carrying out my vocation, and I'm recognizing all this pride swelling up within me. Have mercy. This is the most ridiculous and insane thing. We are unworthy servants, and even the little bit that I'm finally doing after I've neglected so much, <laughs> done so much wrong, now even this is tainted. God, have mercy and cleanse me and forgive me, right? Um, that's So that would be true whether you're sort of positively doing good works or negatively avoiding sins that you previously fell into and you find this kind of pride um now can you i think that how can you mitigate that too though you can say you can say um thank you god that you've caused me now to desire and rejoice in these things to want to do them and forgive me that i'm such a poor servant that i do them so arrogantly and cannot help keep from self-glorying from vainglory but nonetheless, thank you that you've given me these tasks and that you've called me to this purpose by your gospel and that you stand ready to forgive me. And so there's a sense in which we can give thanks to God for the very battle and for this very struggle. Because if God hadn't granted us faith and his Holy Spirit, what would we be doing? We'd be out like the rest of the world, not caring less, convinced that everything we're doing is completely righteous simply because it's me who's doing it. Right? <laughs> Of course, it's going to be a special good work pleasing to God because I'm God's greatest gift, right? That's the default position of the fallen man. Yeah, yeah. So that's great. Prayer, just wrestling with God, crucifying the sinful nature within us, being completely dead, honest, blunt with Him that this is what's going on in me. Have mercy and forgive me. And by the way, thank you um, for all the for all the good that you are doing. To you be praise and glory. And may you increase these impulses within me. May you strengthen my hands to do more good work. Not to my glory or to the praise of men, but to you and so your glory. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, please do, please do. I mean that that line that I just quoted is from a sacristy prayer of Luther that we pray, that I pray every Sunday before service, and it's just you're reminded that you're you're preaching the gospel and teaching the faith to the best of your poss- possible abilities, to the best of what God's given you, but not in such a way that it's to your glory or to the praise of you or anyone else around you. The last thing I want people to think is, wow, Pastor Rody did a great job, or wow, faith's a really incredible congregation. That's glory and praise put in the wrong place. I want people to say, thank God that the gospel is going forth in this place, and thank God that people have been converted by this gospel and are supporting a gospel ministry. And where else but crazy Southern California, where you least expect it. You know, I, so the praise and glory go to God, not to us. And that's kind of the, that's the, that's the intent. That's, so this is the re- wrestle of our prayer life and our own inner soul as we bring these impious thoughts to submission, um, for the glory of God and for that understanding within us, which is correct. I, I was just gonna, I, you said what I was kind of, wanting to highlight is recognizing where it all really comes from which when you're going to god in prayer you're recognizing where it really always you're you're 
your good works, your sanctification. It's really only, we're only filthy rags is what we produce. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we go back to the word, that's what it says, you know, that we can't, we can't. um, So remembering that it's God who, who makes it all possible. And he doesn't give us that coin and say, if you would only just. Right. He gives us the coin. Yep. Yeah, and that and that coin, the passive aspect, is even to the man who does not work. I mean, this is the, this is kind of the paradoxical nature of that part of Romans that God justifies the ungodly, God justifies the one who does not work. Now, this isn't prescriptive. <laughs> this isn't okay. So go prove it by being as ungodly as you can. Um, go prove it by doing no work at all. That's not the point. That that is addressed uh, just like what, uh, two chapters later in Romans chapter 6, should we go on sinning that grace may abound by no means? But the principle nonetheless is necessary to demonstrate um, that, of course, God does justify the ungodly because we haven't done anything and he comes with his gospel and justifies us. But even after justifying us, he justifies the man who does not work. That is, the man who has no... So even if, in theory, you were a Christian who had no good works whatsoever, you still get into heaven. But, of course, that's just a theory. It's not... And it's meant to articulate the point. There's no such thing as a Christian without good works. Because what? Even confessing Jesus Christ is the beginning of the first commandment, to have no other gods except the true one. Sometimes people point to the thief on the cross and say, well, he didn't have any good works. Absolutely he did. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's a confession of faith. That is a good work. It's, a, it's the beginning of the fulfillment of the first commandment and all other commandments. Um, he also rebukes the unbelieving man, which is an act of love toward that unbelieving man. Um, so he's already beginning to love God and neighbor. He's already beginning to fulfill the law instantly upon coming to faith in Christ. It's unavoidable. But the principle still needs to be there so that we're grounded in justification by grace through faith completely apart from works because we know that Satan can very easily come along and just devastate and and destroy all our good works in front of us, our entire life before us, so that we, not unlike Job, say, I'm afraid of all my deeds. And we need to know that, hey, God, even if I didn't have anything, no works at all, would you still bring me into your kingdom? Would you still save me in Christ Jesus? And the answer is, yes, absolutely. This is predicated upon my goodness, not yours. That's why I'm so glad I'm not God. I don't need to know Yeah, nobody wants to know all those details. Being God isn't all it's cracked up to be. <laughs> right, okay, please. Could the coin analogy be expanded into how we should rightly enact witnessing or evangelizing? So Alice brings up, you know, I don't know the circumstances of her example, but, and I'm not saying anything other than could you have an active role in witnessing for example, saying, I absolutely disagree with what you're doing, and therefore the relationship could be over, versus a passive, I don't know if it's active or passive, but you don't agree with what someone's doing, but you're still going to stay in their life because staying closer to them, if they know what you stand for, sets an example. So 
I don't know. It just, as she was talking and thinking about it, it's like, especially Christians on the internet, they drop these bombs on people that are like, you absolutely are wrong. End of conversation. Game over. Mm -hmm. Does that help? Is that, I don't know. I, mm. I mean, I know every circumstance is different, but thinking about circumstances of my own life, I know I'm not the savior, but you do need to stand firm in what you believe and when called upon to do so, yeah. tell people, I don't know. It, does that make any sense? Right. Abs well, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The moral of the story is stay off of the internet, stay off of social media. I always have a meme that comes into my head, but I've personalized it for myself. You know, mom calls from the other room. Pastor Rody, your chicken nuggets are ready. Just a minute, mom. Someone on the internet is wrong. <laughs> Correct. But, uh, you know, this is, this is the ridiculousness of that whole, uh, so, so what we're really talking about is just the art of vocation. And generally speaking, Christians always want to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is within you. What does that assume? That the hope that is within you has already been spoken. Thus, you're giving a defense for it, an apologia for it. Okay, so we've preached the gospel. The gospel's been rejected. Why would we, um, why, what would we have to say to that rejection? That's the apologia. And we do so in gentleness and love. Um, now, this is a general Christ Christian, but we want to always look and say, what is my vocation towards this person? What has God called me to do in their life? Because that's going to really change shape and change form. I'm going to speak to my kids in ways that I wouldn't speak to you. <laughs> because we have, you know, I'm your pastor. That's a very different vocational shape than uh, your father, your earthly father. Okay, So um, we need to recognize the unique shape of our vocation. You know, the way a husband is called to love his wife and wife, a husband is very different than um, how you're called to love your female or male coworker. <laughs> a very different vocational shape. So that's part of the art is recognizing what in what office do I stand towards this person? What are my duties and obligations? If nothing is specified therein, then the next task, and this is much more art than science, how do my words and behaviors towards this person further them in their spiritual life? How do they draw them closer to Christ or push them further away from Christ? And this in and of itself can even give us a sense that it's more simple than it really is. Because sometimes what needs to happen, to use an analogy, is in order for the right building to be built, you have to first demolish the bad building. And so sometimes bringing people closer to God is that act of proclaiming um, the law, proclaiming repentance, right? standing up and affirming this is what's right and you're in violation of that. It's not going to go well for you. And that, even though um, it might seem counterintuitive, like, oh, you're pushing them away from God, is in fact the very thing that you need to do in order to bring that person closer to God. So you can think of John the Baptist, for example, um, speaking against Herod, who had done this immoral thing. He's a, Of course, he's the Herod's the politician, the governor. Um, he calls him out on marrying his brother's wife unlawfully, immorally. And why is he doing this? Because he wants Herod to feel bad about himself? Because he wants Herod to go on sinning all the way into hell? No, because he wants Herod to what? Repent. 
and ultimately, knowing John the Baptist, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and bear fruits worthy of repentance and be saved. But the first step is you have to come to terms, Herod, with what things are manifesting in your life and how contrary to God's will these things are. So, yeah, there's an art. And there's an art too, you know, especially we all have this experience increasingly, you know, whether it's your siblings or... um whether it's your children or maybe it's possibly even your parents, you know, what do you do when they've, uh, when they're walking away from the faith and straying from the faith and maybe living in kind of manifest sins? How do you engage them? That's art more than it is science. And so I don't think that it's the role of a pastor or church to tell you definitively, hey, this is when you should shun someone or when you should engage someone tolerantly. Um, those are more personal considerations. Certainly a pastor can help you f- with that, but to make general pronouncements isn't the role of pastor or church. Please. Um, this, uh, this question about who does the work in uh, my salvation uh, uh, and what results in my belief, I, I've always gone personally to this verse in John six twenty nine, where it says... Um, Jesus' words, uh, this is the work of God that you believe in Christ whom I have sent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let me see if I have this right then. So belief is an outgrowth of the faith given to me by God, which is a gift. But he works in me to sustain that faith and also on the active side of faith to Cause, you know, to give me desires of the heart to do works that are pleasing and obedient to him. Do I have that right? And is this a good proof text verse for, for it? It's a fine text to articulate uh, that what God wants us to do is believe his promises. Now, if I say, I promise to you, I'm going to take you to, and maybe I say it to my kids, I promise you I'm going to take you to Disneyland tomorrow. What condition have I laid upon them? What do they have to do in order for me to keep my word? Nothing. You see how that's the difference between faith and works. And that's what Wolfmuller is articulating. Um, so you, so for Christ to say, this is, you know, tell us what we may be doing that we may be doing the works of God, they say to Christ. And Christ says, believe. Okay. In other words, I'm, I, what I am here to do is proclaim the promise of God, salvation through me, through the forgiveness of sins. Um, that is a promise. I forgive your sins. What, just like you can't do anything to go to Disney, it's already a promise. It's already happening. Same with the forgiveness of sins. It's this objective reality. So it's a fine verse and a fine text. Now, what we want to do is we want to be a little careful um, when we articulate the two sides of the coins, particularly passive righteousness or passive faith. It doesn't really matter, but we want to keep we want to keep this over in that on that side of the coin. And and what I'm talking about is that God not only creates faith, saving faith within us, but that he sustains that saving faith within us. Nothing that we do participatory keeps our faith alive. Um, it doesn't have anything to do with that. It's, it's a whole gift from start to finish. He keeps that coin. He's given that coin to me, would be the analogy. He's given that coin to me, and he keeps that in my hands, right? Um, even if I am faithless, he is faithful. And... Um, it's going to take it's going to take an act of me turning away from him and throwing that coin away, you know, rejecting him in unbelief, for that for that coin to be removed from me. 
right? Even then, still, what is God going to do? He's going to pick up that coin and say, you know, you are my son, I, you are my daughter, this is for you. And if you resist that your whole life through, well, then finally you get what you, you know, want. But when we're, when we're articulating this as what God does, that's all the, on the passive side to us. That's why we are passive, passive righteousness, um, passive faith. It's all the things that God's doing. And that includes creating faith and sustaining faith. Anything else, growing, strengthening faith, everything else is all on the active side. And why we say that's active isn't because we have the primary role or the exclusive role. It's that the Holy Spirit has the primary role and, and really the causal role, but that we participate and cooperate in that working of the Holy Spirit. And that's just everywhere the teaching of the scriptures, and it happens to be in the formula of Concord uh, as well on the article on free will. Okay, as a follow-up then, this man who brought his uh, child to Jesus and said, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Mm -hmm. Is that that's passive righteousness, passive faith that he was asking? Well, the I believe is a confession of faith. So if we're going to get down to the like real nitty-gritty here, um, God has already given him faith. Christ has already given him faith. He knows that Christ is going to be able to cast this demon out of his son, whereas his disciples failed. Thus he says, I believe. Now, technically speaking, the belief is already a condition of his heart. When he says, I believe, that's actually a matter of active righteousness because it's a confession of faith. So, too, when he says, help my unbelief, because he's confessing the weakness of that faith and the insufficiency of that faith. It's why this resonates so deeply with us, because even though we believe, we, we know that that faith within us isn't this kind of like chest-thumping, meritorious, you're welcome, God, I believe. <laughs> Um, it's, no, I believe, but boy, is my faith small, fragile, constantly in danger of distortion and error. Um, I believe, help my unbelief. It's a beautiful and pious prayer. And of course, then Christ does what the disciples cannot do, and he uh, casts out uh, the demon mm -hmm. for the man. So a beautiful statement of, of faith and, the, and a confession of the weakness of our faith. All right, well, that, um, that brings us to the end of our time. So we didn't get as far as I had hoped, but I hope the conversation was edifying. I don't, I don't mind. I know we've kind of got an agenda. We want to get through the book. We want to get through as fast as we can. But more, I'm more interested in what questions interest you and more interested in articulating these fundamentals of Christianity. Um, they really matter more than anything else. Next week, we'll look at absolution. and We'll look at conscience. And we'll round out this chapter again, God willing. The Lord be with you.